Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story, except when we don't. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're talking about storytelling in comic books. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest Chris Mav Maverick. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Mav. And also producer Andrew will be joining us for this discussion. Hello. Um, This is a special episode. We've done a few storytelling in... Uh, various kinds of media. I, I remember for sure we did video games, we did tabletop RPGs, and this is one that I kind of had in my head that when I need to just do a, uh, a low prep special episode that I'm good to go on, <laughs> we should just talk about uh, just, just storytelling all the secrets, huh? books. Yeah. Well, just, uh... if, if by low prep you mean you've spent decades of your life and thousands and thousands <laughs> of dollars preparing for this episode. Yes, yes, yeah. And, and maybe I could reach out and get someone else who also has a PhD yeah, <laughs> in don't... this area. See, decades of my life, that doesn't bother me as much. But when you when you point out the financial expense, when you're like thousands, <laughs> oh my god, I don't even know. Hey, like <laughs> if it makes if it makes you feel better, I have also spent thousands of yeah, dollars yeah. preparing for this, but I do not have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a large I've, I've just comic been book collection, buying and reading comic books. <laughs> it's not too late. It's not too late. Just, you can just jump oh, in. It's, it's never too late to join academia. I was gonna say, well, you've got a brother graduating. Like, like there's a there's about to be a void in in Dorowski's in PhD program that needs to be filled. Yes, there's, <laughs> there's about to be a a weird gap where oh, there's not currently any Dorowski's in uh in in a program for an advanced degree in yeah. this right. field, right? Because you got a sister and a, two brothers, right? Like, I, but the, clearly there's a gap that you know, you know yeah. a, a vacuum that needs to be filled, Andrew. <laughs> This is the calling. Nature will fill it. Now, in talking about comic books, one of the first odd things that you have to do is define what a comic book is. Don't oh, bother. You can't. Mav, how do you address this subject when it comes up in your class discussions? Or I, your I make them read the first chapter of of Understanding Comic Comics. Understanding comics. And, then I, yeah. and then I say, and and people disagree. Um, if you want to go into grad school, you can have more of this, but like, this is what we're going to use for this class. <laughs> I even acknowledge that it's not even necessarily my example because notably, I, I point out notably McLeod excludes single panel comics um, in, in his first right. chapter. Which he's like, becomes... yeah, uh, yeah. And I think he's wrong. And, and I'm like, it's just like, look, I mean, like basically I go, look, I can look at family circus and I can say that's a comic. And if you disagree with me, you're just being pedantic and come on. So, and that's, but then also and that's you, you can it. look at a painting hanging out of, you know, in a museum and say, that's not a comic. And uh-huh. people will be like, well, is it? If this yeah. is a, because once you get granular in the definition mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of things that fit or are being excluded. And then so, you have but, things that, that like, okay, they're paintings. They do have extra elements that would make it like a mm-hmm. comic. Like I really like course of empire, which is a series of five paintings showing, like significant stages in civilization in, mm-hmm. in a single setting that's juxtaposed images that are telling a narrative across time. Yeah. Yep. So, so the McLeod definition, and I'm going to try and pull this from memory uh, and you can correct me if you think I'm off juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence in deliberate sequence. Yes. And then there's something else he adds on like to convey information uh, mm-hmm. or, or, or make a response, uh, maybe an aesthetic response. Here, I'm going to go double check. <laughs> I guess I can. I mean, I mean okay, it's not like I'm, I'm like, juxtaposed yeah, I mean, and other images in deliberate sequence. I, I think I nailed that part. But then the last part is intended to convey information and or produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. That's his definition of comics. Mm-hmm. And he immediately also says, but there's issues here. <laughs> because mm-hmm. uh, when you're saying like juxtaposed images in a deliberate sequence, that also would cover film. <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and clearly film is not comics. Which he points yeah, out on that page, yeah. Or, or and then you or have, are they comics? Because he also says, or is it just a very very slow comic if you hold it up? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you've got like, well, there's children's books, which mm-hmm. are basically comics. You just turn pages instead of panels. Yeah, I, I just one hundred, uh, I hundred percent count children's books, and um, the reason. So right now, you know, I teach a course 
pretty much every year, which uses this, um, which uses comics as a as a as a jumping off point. I teach a course on narrative um, called Narrative and Technology, which is about the ways in which changes in technology have changed the way we view narrative. Um, comics being a technology, and so I I do this a lot. And um, I don't know if you if you're familiar with the University of Pittsburgh, the um, university where I am employed, um, you might have heard of the Cathedral of Learning, our main academic building, or at least main in that it's the biggest one is we have a 40 story um, skyscraper that looks like a Gothic cathedral, except for it's an academic building. It's intentionally styled that way. It's very interesting looking. And it's appeared in, if you ever see a comic that takes place in Pittsburgh, the cathedral of learning appears in it because it is a very distinctive Pittsburgh building. You can find pictures of Spider-Man swinging past it. In fact, in the, in the issue in which he proposes to Mary Jane. So, um, that building is where I teach in right now and when i did this lesson i was in a one of our historic rooms um which has um there are many essentially um catholic and other religions um faux 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 glass um stained glass windows we also have real stained glass but the the walls are painted to look they're painted in murals to look like additional stained glass windows inside. And so there's a triptych in the room that I'm in. And immediately once we started describing that, one of my students just turns around and says, so does that count? And it's like, well, interesting that you might say that. And that's in that, that becomes a discussion. I would say, yes, I would say a triptych of say the Ascension of Christ, which is what that particular one is counts as a stained glass window. It is as a comic. It is a three picture, deliberate sequence telling a story of jesus that looks like a comic to me Mm -hmm. but absolutely you will find people who disagree absolutely Uh, and and there's a a lot of oddness about it i i when i talk about this with my students i often end up just kind of saying like you know we end up leaning on the supreme court definition of pornography yeah (laughs) i know it when i see it and jacob ellis versus ohio jacob ellis versus ohio i also point that out yes (laughs) that's maybe the easiest thing is just kind of like we all kind of know what comics are and if you're trying to make this very exacting uh definition you by the nature of doing that are going to be excluding stuff that feel like comics and including stuff that actually don't feel like comics. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the way it works. And uh, then the next part of the discussion of on comics becomes what is the first comic? And the historical oh. record is murky on this. <laughs> I mean, the first comic is the first cave painting where they're hunting Buffalo. There's pictures yes. in sequence yes. telling a story. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, well, the, the first, yeah, you know, printing date unknown. Um, but if you, <laughs> If you look artist, at the artist unknown, author yes, unknown. Yes. Yeah. If you look at the the work of Chris Gavler, um, will will often cite that in in his in his works where he talks about the history of comics, and he'll say, "Yeah, look, it's it's cave painting issue one, um, um, published <laughs> January, you know, one mil or January ten thousand BC." And I'm like, yeah. "Yeah, sure, that's cute, Chris." But but yes, that would be. A reasonable um that would be a reasonable argument um i because i have such an inclusive definition of comics um i would argue that the first comic is you know some cave kid scribbling two images next to each other in the sand you know yeah well, it's, it's, sadly not preserved for yeah, history. yeah. yeah. lost so, history. So probably in dirt before paint on a wall right that's exactly exactly uh, okay, and, and now then, hang on, hang on, hang on. Oh, okay, go on. How would you feel about someone like making kind of hand puppets? <sighs> like that, next uh, to each we've other, gone a little too far field. Is that is that is that stepping out of it? So like for me, no. three dimensional. Yeah, and I knew I knew Mav was gonna be fine with that. <laughs> uh, but for, yeah, a three dimensional comic is n- it, three. So sculpture, not comic. I consider comics to be a two D art form. Okay. But that's me, and I, I, I could, I could entertain that it's not. So, like, so I, would, um, have, I yeah. would have to see like sculpture in deliberate sequence, which exists. Yes, certainly. and I, and I don't count that either. I, I don't count yeah, that, I, nor do I count acting. But, I, I consider those a, a a separate art form because I believe, given the thing I just said about technology, I believe with the technology you are telling a different kind of story when you're mm-hmm. using movement or when you're using physical third dimensions than you are when you are using a 2D representation. Now, if you take 
sculptures and photograph them or like say comics that are made out of like posing action figures for instance right Mm -hmm. yes those become comics because um the flattening of the space is what makes it is part of what makes it a comic to me this is not something mcleod says but it's to me uh, and with that debate about film, when you get the comics that take frames from film and turn it into a comic mm-hmm. book, which Disney has been doing quite a lot of recently, mm-hmm. but there's a long history of that happening. Those are all comics, mm-hmm. clearly, even if you don't want it, you, you don't want to count film. And, and to reverse it, about... a motion comic becomes a cartoon. A motion comic is not a comic. It's a, it's a film. <laughs> so so yeah. similar. Interesting. Yes. We barely have to talk about motion comics. Yes. <laughs> Mav, how do you feel yes. about reliefs? Interesting question that I had not considered. I, I I see I see what you're doing, and and this is to Joe's earlier point. The second you try to impose a strong definition, uh, uh, I, you go, yeah. Eh. And I, I I I mean, I guess I could grudgingly accept one, but 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 I, but I feel like I'd ra- like I like I, if I were writing a book, I don't think I would ever use it as my prime example, other than to say, yeah, this one's kind of weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, I mean, when we were talking about the history of comics, like I said, the the historical record is murky in part because people don't agree on what counts as comics. So mm-hmm. when you get into tapestries that are telling a story or Egyptian hieroglyphs or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any number of historical ways of preserving visual art that seem to be telling a story, do any of those count? When we talk about the printing process of putting these, uh, you know, onto uh, a press and, and and something is being produced that way. It's newspaper. Uh, political comics tend to get first, but that then that gets into the debate of do single panels count or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then we finally do get, in America, the newspaper comic strip in the late 1800s that everyone kind of agrees. Like, okay, well, this is comics now. We have mm-hmm. definite comics that are happening here on the newspaper comics page. And then generally it's agreed we get to comic books and what you would recognize as comic books in the 1930s when they start to say, hey, let's reprint newspaper comic strips. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, famous in, funnies. In book form. <laughs> yeah, or funnies on parade. Is that the first? Or funnies, yeah, funnies on parade, famous funnies are the, fir- yeah, the first uh, around two. The yeah. Once one publisher does it, everyone's like, this is a dumb idea. Everyone has paid for the comics when they bought the newspaper. They're not going to buy it again. <laughs> and then they reprint newspaper comic strips and it sells well. Then every publisher immediately starts putting out their own reprints of their newspaper comic everyone strips. Everyone saw the movie in the theaters. They're not going to buy it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. And uh, oh, they oh, it, they it, will. Well, this is free. Then let's just do a bunch of these. Yes. Yeah. Everyone listen to the music live. They're not going to buy it again. Uh, and then eventually, in the a uh, few years after they do the reprints, they start to say, "Well, we've got all these people who want to be newspaper comic strip artists, and we've rejected their work. What if we just printed that stuff? Would people buy that?" <laughs> and uh, we get new original material being printed in. America in comic books in what we fully recognize as, as like original American comic book art is going to come about in the late 1930s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at that point it's like, okay, we know what this thing is. Mm-hmm. We, we, you can look at any of that stuff from the 1930s and there's no, no debate. Like, wouldn't we say, well, what about this Catholic art from the 14th century where there might be <laughs> like, some people who say yes, some people say no. Once we're into the 1930s, it's, it's a floppy comic book as you yeah. know it today. Like the, the 1930s America, like I don't know how much other media has such a clear inflection point where you can say like this is a different thing, and this is maybe like the the prime condition of this thing. Like this is what we're talking about, and then retroactively we're saying, well, this sort of stuff is is related to this. Yeah, because I but mean, like, like, but even, like even, we're talking about the floppy comic books. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and like with with film, it's like okay you know film we know late in 1800s we, we have moving pictures but then it like the technology is still evolving to what our experience with film today is different than the experience of film you know 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 80 mm-hmm. years ago the experience with comic books is basically the same you, you <laughs> hand someone a floppy comic from from yeah. today you hand that to someone 90 years ago they know what they're what they're receiving right yeah. I, I think the the analog for that is the question of do web comics count do and again or the Mm -hmm. argument that just that we just talked about like the motion comic i think there are deviations but i think what makes the comic book tm uh the comic book as a form special is that that very specific artifact has remained in somewhat popular usage ever since its inception um now certainly 
considerably less popular in 2024 than it was in 1939. Like there's yeah, the 19, no- 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. I don't think we pre- appreciate how much this was the mass pop culture. Uh, yes, was, was comic <laughs> books being read? Right, <laughs> like they right. Were. reading. I mean, uh, even things like like to tell people today that the you know one of the most important figures in pop culture at one point was Captain Marvel Jr. You know, but just <laughs> it just was it was selling millions of copies of yeah. not even Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel Jr. was just like this massive phenomenon um, at one point, and that sort of lost on people. I, I, I think that because of the fandom that grew around the comic book form, it's kept it alive longer than you know its natural lifespan would deem it necessary. Like we don't have people, you know, just clamoring for eight track tapes. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> we have people <laughs> we have people clamoring for comics in the same way that we have them, frankly, clamoring for vinyl records or, mm-hmm. you know, the stage is an acting um, venue. Mm-hmm. Right. There's there's no reason a playhouse needs to exist at all other than we just sort of enjoy it as a slightly different experience than the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, and, I, and I and I do. I mean, I, that's not a complaint. I enjoy live theater. But yeah, like it doesn't need to be there. The need of live theater, ha- you know, was supplanted by movies literally a hundred something years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I've got like one major topic to, to I think we should address early on, but also I, I think I want to like nudge us past the history and like yeah. dig into mm-hmm. the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we should I think it's worth acknowledging and and talking about briefly the distinction between comic books and superhero comic books because it is also like maybe the the media that has most tied into a genre to the point where their identities are inseparable so where people mm-hmm. say a comic book movie is coming out and they mean a superhero movie yes and, and, everyone, and, and, and like, it's and you they think mean that and also everyone book. who hears that phrase knows when you say comic book movie you mean a superhero movie yeah and and you, like you don't mean road you, to perdition when you're thinking of of a American floppy Spider? comic book, you're probably thinking of of a superhero thing, and so it's like, okay, we should we should like separate that out so we can talk about mm-hmm. the medium of comic books as a medium, not as a genre or a mm-hmm. like yeah. category of entertainment. In that way, it is a category of entertainment in a storytelling medium. So fairly soon after we get comic books and original work being published in comic books, Superman comes on the scene and then there's a lot of imitation of what are called the golden age superheroes where all the publishers say this, this superhero genre seems particularly popular and it does form an association in a lot of the pop culture consciousness between comic books and those superheroes. Though almost immediately those superheroes do leave comic books and are appearing in movie serials and then on radio plays radio. and in merchandise everywhere. So it's not like it, that's the only place you find superheroes. It's just there's an association that gets formed that actually kind of wanes with the end of World War II because superheroes were uh, jingoistically po- uh, propagandistic during the war <laughs> and everyone associated <laughs> superheroes with the war effort. And uh, there's a lot of lost popularity once the war is over. And to the point Especially that people really, didn't want to think about that war for a little bit. Yeah. When, yeah. <laughs> like, there were uh, issues so super- we'd like to let go of. <laughs> Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman are the only superheroes that keep going. Uh, uh, there were dozens and dozens of superheroes. They all disappear, but the comic book industry stays and starts doing romance comics kid you know animal comics and westerns westerns and monster all, all comics. of the, all and of the other genres problematically yeah. uh for the history of the comic book industry a lot of crime and horror comics are going to rise mm-hmm. in popularity um and then because crime and horror rises in popularity in every medium ever yes yeah yes. true crime is not a podcast situation <laughs> it's an every media ever situation uh and then in the 50s there's a pushback against the crime and horror in particular publishers are looking for something safe to publish that is considered very moral and ethical and they they start to revisit superheroes and that's really in that 19 late 1950s into the 1960s as marvel comics becomes mm-hmm. almost exclusively superheroes and dc comics becomes almost exclusively superheroes that's where we get the forever linkage in public mm-hmm. consciousness between superhero genre and comic book medium now mm-hmm. throughout the entire history of the comic book industry other kinds of stories are being told in the form and in particular now there's probably more variety than ever is being mm-hmm. told uh in graphic novels in web comics in comic books but still people tend to think of the word comic book 
as superheroes. And the word comic already is a misnomer, right? Like, this is just one of those uh, quirks of language that uh, because mm-hmm. there were comedic strips in those early newspaper comic pages uh, or, or newspaper strip pages, uh, people started to call those the funnies or the comics. And mm-hmm. then the, the word comic became associated with that whole medium. So we start with like a mislabeling of mm-hmm. all stories that are in that medium of the newspaper page as comics and being called the comic mm-hmm. strips. Then that becomes the comic book and now comic book means superhero it's like wait how do we like language is weird yeah (laughs) you you get like (laughs) like kind of a a diversion where like you you talked about like political cartoons like we say cartoon Mm -hmm. cartoon is an accurate descriptor of you know your your newspaper comics Mm -hmm. you know single panel or or multi-panel you know those were Mm -hmm. cartoons and cartoon diverted into film and became a term for animated film Mm -hmm. yeah uh, so we're going to talk about, like you said, the strengths or the, or uh, there's I think it's Linda Hutchin. I've been reading uh, her adaptation theory book, and she talks mm-hmm. about every medium has its affordances and constraints, yes. which basically strengths and weaknesses. Like what mm-hmm. what can this medium of storytelling do well that other mediums uh, maybe don't do as well? And so why does telling the story in this particular medium uh, in, in her adaptation theory? She talks about like what 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 do you have to do to tell the story well in this medium compared to that other medium that maybe it was it originally in uh and she works very hard to not like prioritize like one medium is better than the other uh or an adaptation is always going to be inferior to the source material but she's just saying we any adapter needs to be aware of the affordances and constraints of Mm -hmm. the the style of storytelling that they're about to engage in so i will put it to you as an open-ended question what do you think are some of the affordances or strengths of the comic book medium that makes it distinct from other storytelling mediums so there's one for me that I uh, that I would call both an affordance and a strength because I am also familiar with that definition. Go figure. Um, yeah. uh, shocking. The, yes, shocking. <laughs> it's like, how is this our job? I still don't get it. Like, please don't like, please don't tell anybody that this isn't really work. Um, but but um, but the one that I usually use and this informs a lot of my deciding whether or not some something particularly counts as a comic or not is what makes it a comic for me is that visual space and visual time are the same thing so in a movie uh in a film 30 seconds of of action takes 30 seconds unless you're Zack Snyder, in which case it takes 60 seconds. Um, but like, <laughs> it's just a yeah, minor like, ways you can tweak with time in film. But in general, it's yes, like the experience of sitting there is the experience of sitting there. Right. Mm-hmm. And and moreover, the amount of the amount of time that it takes you, the viewer, to watch the scene is roughly equivalent or in theory equivalent to exactly the amount of time that the director you know, producing the scene wants you to take it. You know, it it unfolds before your eyes and you can't do anything about it. Yes. I realize with modern technology, you can hit the rewind button. You can hit the pause button, but like in standard, like, like a, a transgression yeah. of the assumed contract between creator yes. and consumer. The vision yeah, like, of the, the vision of the creator is part of the, it's part of the presumption. And so that, so that becomes a thing that the director has power of over film. That is a strength of film. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, This differs slightly for me from the strength of the stage in that the stage has that same thing with film, but I can't rewind. There's no pausing. And since the actors are live humans, they can affect it beyond the, um, yeah, beyond the dreams of the, of the, of the director. It's gone. It's ephemeral. What I get as an audience member on, on the stage rather than um, in a film is I get to decide what I want to look at. If I feel like looking at Juliet the entire time and ignoring Romeo, you can't stop me. Um, So that's, that is a strength of the stage as opposed to of the film. What comics give me. And also I will just say with, with, with with theater, another difference is that uh, even if you have 150 people seated there, they are all going to have a different experience based different on where they're experience. sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With film, yes, there's a difference in where you sit in the theater, but really you have the exact same image for everyone, which is yes. not the same at all as not to the, the different same. view of the stage. Absolutely. I, I would say, I mean, we're not talking about like storytelling in theater. That's a different mm-hmm. podcast episode to come in the future. Yeah. Uh, but also there is there's a degree of interaction where mm-hmm. actors are responding to the audience in yes. some capacity where they can linger 
for a certain amount of time or they can die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or they can recognize, Oh, this audience is appreciating something Mm -hmm. in a, in a different way than a different audience. And so there, there's a response. Mm -hmm. So with the standard print book, none of that exists. How long time unfolds in a book takes as long as it takes me to read the page. If I want to dwell on the sentence and just admire the language, I can do it for one second. I can do it for 20 minutes. It's just, it's entirely up to me as the reader. The author has no control. Um, Take that, Roland, Edgar Allan Poe, in your theory yes. of composition. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Roland Barthes would say, um, the author is dead, Le Mort de la Tour. Um, and I, I am in control as the, as the reader. Things take me as long as they take me. I can dwell on things however I want. Comics mix this. Comics give me a definitive stage, which the book doesn't give me. The book, everything has to happen in my mind. So, which is fine. It's wonderful. But um, with the comic, I get a visual that is presented to me by the creator. Um, Usually modern American comics are often created by a team. But whoever the creators are, whether it's one person, whether it's five people, they have presented an image to me that I am seeing their image, a fixed, very specific scene, much like a film. But I'm given the power to examine it as long as I want. So um, time is frozen and it moves at my pace. However, what the filmmaker gets, which the uh, I'm sorry, what the comic maker gets, which the author doesn't get is an author's um, of an author of a of a novel has as many pages as he needs. He can describe an instance, uh, an instance of time can take. 50 pages if he really wants to do that for a comic an instance of time basically takes one panel now you could also do the same instance over and over again but that gives a different effect so what i'm seeing is the unfolding of time just will always take more space and i'm always limited by that in a in comic space in a way that i'm not in novel space so it's a limitation but also it leads to very very interesting effects things like um, how long does it take to say a sentence in a book? It doesn't matter, but in a comic book, it well, takes up physical space on the page. Dialogue takes physical space. Time takes and, physical and space. Also, and that pre- changes the film, the form for me. Yeah. I was gonna say it's so different in film. And that's one reason why adapting comic book characters to film. Sometimes what works on the comic book page just does not work in film. Famously, mm-hmm. Spider-Man is very quippy and he's making a joke with every punch that he throws during mm-hmm. a fight scene. Uh, and if you try and do that with an actor actually saying the lines while throwing a punch, it doesn't line up at all. It doesn't yes. work. Uh, but mm-hmm. it works perfectly on the comic book page to have a word balloon as his arm is being cocked back in one panel and, you know, the end of the phrase as the punch is landing in the next panel. Yeah, it's, it's you know? punctuated. <laughs> yeah. uh, but if you try and have Tom Holland, you know, say an entire sentence as he's trying to throw one punch, it, it, it's chaos it on right. film. Mm-hmm. But somehow we have completely accepted those conventions of the comic book page and it does not mm-hmm. feel disruptive to narrative time in any way shape or form i so it, i was thinking about this a little bit because mm-hmm. so when joseph like posed the question what's like the number one thing in my mind and i didn't have like the terminology to describe it the way mav has but it was the same thing i in my mind i just called it decompression of time but then i was like oh but also like they have the control of compression of time Yes. And like the way they stage the action and everything like comic books have such a, a particular weird control over time and and where the camera is in relation to mm-hmm. every bit of action in a way that that no other medium has. And so my my initial instinct was, oh, well, it's it's the way that they convey time is mm-hmm. is something that's really unique about comics. The in terms of like having action mixed and interspersed with dialogue and conversation, the only good example i could think of in a movie where it's like yeah that kind of feels like a comic book but obviously the action doesn't you know it, it's not a panel of action to to the dialogue but in the sword fight in the princess bride mm. they have an a extensive conversation <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they have an extensive extensive conversation with back and forth it's it's punctuated by the action so mm-hmm. it's very much in the line of that comic book thing but you can't do that with hand to hand like they have to have the distance of the swords to mm-hmm put them in a position to have this conversation. You can't do this while punching like this doesn't work for boxing. You just, you said, but, but, for the but swords, with sword you know fight, what? you can kind of get away with it. It happens in Zorro too. It happens in the Antonio Banderas, uh, Catherine, um, Zeta uh, Jones, 
Three Musketeers adaptations will sometimes get this a two. I think yeah. there's something about sword fighting that you're sword right. Sword fighting allows you to do that. Pacing it, of it because mm-hmm. you do like clack, clack, and then say a little quip and then yeah, clack, 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 clack line. Clack, clack, clack. Yep. <laughs> but, and like in a, in a comic book, like clack, clack, clack would be a single panel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and so you're getting like the, the line on either side of clack, clack, clack. And, and the clack, 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 like the action and those lines mm-hmm. are all a single panel. And so in a, in a movie, you know, with the sword play, it's like, okay, this is, you know, 20 seconds of action and dialogue. And it paces out a little bit. But yeah, you know, that's like oh, the closest right. I can think this, of. But it works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've never at all considered that. Yeah. I will. What I, I will say as a limitation to go the other way, um, comic book time is just weird because I, I will offer two of my favorite authors who are not from the comic book world, but both transitioned into it. Um, Kevin Smith from film and Ta-Nehisi Coates from um, print have both done comic books. And with all due respect to two men who will make f- far more for, for writing anything than I ever will in my life. Um, their first few comics are so bad. Because they can't get the balance right. Yeah, is it too much dialogue? It's too much dialogue. It's yeah. It's uh, Kevin Smith. um, First was Green Arrow, right? Was his uh, no Daredevil before Green Arrow? Oh, right, right. right. So many words because Kevin was coming. Now it's not comedic. He's coming from making his silly, you know, Kevin Smith movies to doing a very serious Daredevil movie, and there's just soliloquies that like. There's no room for Daredevil in the panel because, like, the words just take up so much space and it just looks weird. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates does something similar, but his is, like, all sort of description. Like, it's like an over an overuse of, of exposition because he's coming I mean, like, from the text world. Text boxes, of- not dialogue. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> some of them are, well, some of them are text boxes and some of them are people just walking into the room saying, I was talking to T'Challa and Shuri and I was telling them that blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, what are you doing? He's doing the thing that a character does in a novel <laughs> when a character wants to exposition dump. Um, it, and it doesn't bother us when we read it in a novel, but when you see it on a comic book page and you see that, you know, like I said, that Black Panther has told an entire story for this entire page of, you know, why are you talking like that? People don't talk like that. Um, it just, it, it feels weird. It is a very yeah. particular kind of not reality that we expect from each, from each medium. So I've been working on a project about mouse uh, lately, Art Spiegelman's mm-hmm. Mouse, one of the iconic graphic novels, and time is a massive thing that I'm looking at, and both aspects that you've talked about are really present there. So there's a, a part in Mouse in part two where uh, uh, at this point, part one of Mouse has come out and is a huge hit, and there's a third timeline introduced in the graphic novel of Mouse. So, <laughs> him uh, drawing you, the book. Yep, exactly. Yeah. In, in Mouse, there's the timeline of him interviewing his father, which is in the 70s. Uh, and then his father telling his story of the war, which is late thirties and forties. Um, so we flash back to his father's experience in Auschwitz and all these things. And then in part two, we jump to mid eighties of him talking about, I've become very successful writing mouse and I don't know what to do with this. I feel terrible guilt. I'm frozen. I can't draw anymore. Uh, I need to go talk to my therapist and he draws himself going talking to his therapist, but there's a very famous page of it called time flies where Mm -hmm. he's sitting at his drawing board for uh I, I believe it's four panels uh, uh and then there's a large bottom half of the page is him a wide shot of him at his drawing board with a uh, pile of dead mice underneath his his uh drawing board it's drawn to look like uh the the shot or images of victims of of the holocaust mm-hmm. um are there beneath him and so it's it's this visual cue of all of uh you know the guilt <laughs> that he is right he, he is uh feeling um over becoming successful and telling a Holocaust story that he didn't experience uh, and feeling like he is becoming both uh, famous in, in terms of his art and his, uh, his storytelling, but then also becoming rich uh, because the book is selling so well. And, 
he 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 feels immense guilt uh, about this. And I found a quote from Spiegelman where he says, like, the panel is the metronome for the artist, where he gets to tell the reader how long they're supposed to feel on it. And he's like, of course, as we've said, like, the reader can actually take as long as you want. But that page becomes quarter note, quarter note, quarter note, quarter note, long held note. And you're supposed to sit there and take in all the symbolism that he's packed into that large panel uh, at the end, which the longer you look at it, the more you see that out the window, there's actually a guard tower from Auschwitz, that mm-hmm. there is a weird shadow on the wall that is actually part of a swastika, that the wallpaper in his studio is essentially a swastika now because he's been living with the, with World War II while working on this project for over a decade uh, at this point. You know, you, you take in and note that he's wearing a mask instead of being drawn as a mouse, which he has been in yes. all the other versions. He's actually a mouse. So like the longer you take on the page the more symbolism you get and and the pacing that he gives you with the panel sizes is actually an invitation to stop and take in all that symbolism uh and it's very similar i mean they're going for a different effect but when uh superhero comic artists do the big splash page after a page turn it is like uh you know action 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 in usually small panels leading up to turn the page big massive splash page of batman leaping off the building uh or or you know superman coming through a wall uh or captain america throwing a shield you know any of the of the iconic splash page images that you can imagine in your mind those are usually controlled with pace leading up to it and then a page turn which is part of the you know the Mm -hmm. the technology of comic books is the turn of the page uh Mm -hmm. to get the big splash page image that you are supposed to stop and pause on and take in the artist's skill and the aesthetic qualities but also the narrative impact of uh of that moment and the idea of of like the panel is metronome which is uh completely a spiegelman term that i i had never heard before (laughs) i'm giving full credit to him that i just love that idea that Mm -hmm. uh the art uh, a true artist and craftsman that is deliberate is controlling so much of how we perceive time in comic books and also manipulating us to not just feel the passage of time differently based on how they're drawing it but also to pause and take in their work differently depending on how Mm -hmm. they're presenting it to us I would argue he's doing it in concert with us, though, you know, Mm. because we have the control in the same way we do as a novel. Like he can't force us to stare at that image. He clearly wants us to, but he Uh can't force us to. So there's an implied contract. I've talked about this with enough students that I can tell you there are people who don't see the guard tower in the window. There are very few Um, students actually catch the swastika shadow. (laughs) um, I've talked to enough that like I've, so I'm also aware that there are certain students who find that to be the most uncomfortable part of the book. And so they turn it very quickly. Yeah, they turn um, it quickly. Yeah, because he's literally – and I think it's the what they usually point out. It's the heap of bodies. The fact that oh, yeah. he is on a heap of bodies in very clear Holocaust imagery makes them uncomfortable in a way that – you know, the entire book's about the Holocaust. But it makes them directly uncomfortable. So um, often – people will turn the page and just get past it. So even though he wants it, having that happen is a contract between author and reader in a way that doesn't happen in film because mm-hmm. in film, like if the film slows down to a, you know, uh, I don't know. In, Zack Snyder slow-mo. Oh yeah, well, sure. But I, I was thinking just for the direct to, for the direct, um for the direct comparison, I was going to say Schindler's list. When Schindler's List, when Spielberg wants you to take in the Holocaust, he's going to make you take in the Holocaust. You know, yeah. you, he has more control over how right. much time you spend experiencing that. Right. If you and want out, you, you got to leave the theater. Ahead. Yeah. You got to close yeah. your eyes or and wait for the music to tell you the scene has changed. Yes. Uh, or or you're just there as long as he wants you. And and you're, and in this case, like you're saying, uh, how much you take in on that panel and how much you're going to dig into, even to the point where uh, this is uh a passage where uh, Spiegelman actually letters everything differently. He does mixed case lettering when mm-hmm. he's the narrator outside of the two main timelines that I've mentioned. Uh, and all of time flies is in that mixed case lettering. And that's not something I don't think a student has ever caught, <laughs> you know, on their first week. Cause you, you, you're not supposed to, it's, it's like so subtle and just a part of his mastery of the comic book form that there's a slight cue and you really have to be wanting to zero in that you're even going to catch that. And the only other times he does mixed case lettering is like the narrations as you're heading into a chapter because it's mm-hmm. the omniscient narrator, you know, mm-hmm. voice. Because that's the, that is the comic book world, not the interview world. Mm-hmm. It is yes. the place yeah, where, the, he's, where the comic he's world guiding is us into approached. the interview world. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the things that you're describing about, you know, how an artist can control the pacing and spending time on a splash page, all of that is somewhat dependent on a skilled artist who knows how to use the medium. This is a potential strength of, of the medium, not an inherent strength of the yeah. medium. Oh, and uh, then because the other one... there's there's a lot of splash pages that I've like turned, looked at and moved on and spent twice as much time on. 
oh, you know, the, the one- pages on either side because it doesn't always have, you know, a- a- enough to like really pull in. Oh, the the worst for me is when uh when there's like the supposed to be a surprise reveal and it's on a right hand side of a page. Like as soon oh. as you're on mm-hmm. the page, you have seen whatever the big character is reveal that's on the right hand side. <laughs> it has to be a page turn if the if the character reveal is supposed to be at the moment as you see the panel for the first time. Because when you turn the page, your eyes is going to flick over there and see, oh, you know, the Joker is really the bad guy in this issue of Batman mm-hmm. uh, or or whatever it is. But but sometimes it's set up where you're supposed to go read the eight panels on the left hand page and then look over to the right hand page and see the Joker and be shocked. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work unless the skilled creator has put that on the page turn. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention with what you were saying, Mav, is I've also been looking at mouse as uh, adaptation and look like looking at the original recordings and transcription, mm. Lodox interviews from Metamouse. Where, <laughs> like, yeah. Where also on the see, shelf behind me. <laughs> <laughs> where you will see uh, like Lodox will sometimes like ramble and like trying to recapture and tell his story. It, like it is a lot of words that he uses and then you want you look at how art spiegeling captured that and it's like that's three panels and and 17 words mm-hmm. uh he turned this you know if you're listening to it you know minute and a half of of description or if you're reading it like a full page of transcription uh that happens that becomes just 17 words and three visuals uh and he's leaning into the strengths of the comic medium to translate the the long memoir like like oral memoir that his father gave him mm-hmm. uh of life into this and so uh it, it is an act of translation and and adaptation to, to to make that move but like andrew was saying if you have a master who's very good at the medium like our mm-hmm. school is they're able to take you know you know put some of those words into visual information and also just edit and choose the exact right words that are going to fit into the word balloon where it doesn't feel overwhelming that it, it looks right and well balanced on the page and conveys all that information that for someone who is just telling a story is of course going to be rambling and at times a little incoherent and all the times a little um, redundant uh, in, in how they explain it. Uh, and what you were saying about a lot of creators who come into the comic book world for the first time, one of the first mistakes that you very often see is they're just too wordy. They mm-hmm. convey as much of the information through text rather than through the visuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, any other strengths or weaknesses affordances or constraints that you want to highlight about storytelling in comic books i mean this is i'd say this is something that can be used i mean i would say it's it's you would inherently think of it as a constraint but it allows it it affords the opportunity to do things that you cannot do in other media and that's the lack of sound hmm yeah there's no uh, audio component which means that sometimes you have a word balloon and you have no idea if it's male or female, if it's a young or old person, mm-hmm. where in film, it's like, no, you would know something about that voice or mm-hmm. it would have to be distorted, which mm-hmm. puts an extra layer into that character. I remember that specifically in um, in Runaways comic books, early Runaways. There's some phone conversations where mm-hmm. we see what is being spoken on the other end of the phone, but but we can't hear it. So we know nothing about the person. But the implication is that their voice would be recognizable. Right. Right. But and, we don't and, know gender or age. Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. can't read any of that that you get very quickly in a, when you're hearing a voice. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so so I think that's an interesting thing that sometimes gets used to, to like good effect in comics. I haven't read it. Is in that there time, is no, does, no does sound. Fred, Brad Meltzer do that in one of his mystery DC mysteries? I'm trying to remember. Like, uh, like Identity Crisis? Yeah. I haven't read it in so long. I bet, that, be I, that feels like the kind of thing that would be an Identity Crisis somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of that. That is done often. So, a comic book, if you want to convey that someone hears a voice that they recognize and you want them to say it, you have to do something that you wouldn't do in film. Which you have to say, you have to have, you have to have Batman hang up and say, "I was just talking to Wonder Woman," or you know, or yeah. <laughs> or show yeah, her you or want something. That information, yeah. So right. it's great for mystery. It's mm-hmm. not so great if you want clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that sometimes you'll see them do is uh, like they color word boxes based on the character that's speaking. Mm-hmm. That's usually like internal monologues. More often, I'd say yeah. than mm-hmm. than than text balloons, but uh-huh. or put their symbol in the in the word balloon or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like so that, I can yes. remember. I don't know where, but I know I've seen like the little Wonder Woman W's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can you can access off, it, you know, off scene somehow. Right, which is which is another you know, it's a form thing. It's a it's 
there is a language to comics, which I think we lose appreciation for if we're big comics fans. Um, every once in a while, I'll teach a I will teach a student who has literally never read a comic before. Mm-hmm. Not like they're not comic fans. It's just like somebody says, oh, yeah, I never read any of these growing up. Um, I mean, I guess I've seen one in the newspaper once because but like at this point, it's 2024. I've got students who've never read a newspaper, who've literally, right. you know, <laughs> comics page. Yeah, like there's a. I mean, my grandfather gets the gets that or something, you know. Like there's there's that sort of thing. So so they there's I do have occasional students who are lost on things like even what direction to read the the panels in, and therefore things like I don't know who's talking when word balloons are there just aren't second nature and you sort of learn them just if as a comic fan you learn how onomatopoeia works you learn how word balloons work you or learn even the shape of word balloon is, is supposed to mm-hmm. convey whisper or shouting uh, or, or, or the speech. size of the text within a word balloon sometimes or they the, make it smaller text because it's yeah. a whisper or even that like uh, to a novice comic reader i think people believe that like bold letters must be yelling but they're not <laughs> They're like bigger letters are yelling. Bold letters are just sort of important words. It's sort of a or, uh, an inflection. Sort of, sometimes inflection or intonation is supposed to be conveyed. It's yeah, a little bit when I, when I look at different letters, it's like, ah, uh, yeah. Right, right, like, I don't know why you're bolding all of that sort of stuff. <laughs> right. Well, um, oh God, especially in the Silver Age. In Silver Age, it was just random. You know, it's just like, <laughs> and well, and, and all of the language that you're describing, like, again, there's writers and artists and creators who are better or worse at that. Even mm-hmm. as experienced readers, sometimes we read something and it's like, oh, I don't know why, but they laid out this page kind of mm-hmm. weird. And that is not the flow that that I would normally follow. Well, so we did. There's also there's just sort of magic of the form. And I, I am not Spiegelman. I'm not going to be that good. But when I was when I was writing the webcomic that I did for a few years, we from the very beginning, Max and I made this choice, which was we wanted to be, you know, what can we do in the comics form? So we made the choice for Cosmic Hellcats that word balloons were solid. We were never going to talk about it. No one was ever going to say anything because in much the same way as we hear and we don't really think about how sound works in our world, we wanted to say in their world, they don't think about the fact that they read word balloons. We were just going to we were we we were just going to behave as though the word balloons were part of the artwork, um, and it was just the thing between Max and I. And we were like, "Will anybody notice?" And the first time someone noticed was a podcast that reviewed our comic and complained about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> they were uh, the complaint was they didn't. So we threw we we drew our word balloons with a little three D shadow and a drop a drop shadow to give them like a, just a, a hint of thickness and. The guy who reviewed it didn't like it because he was just like, it's he's like, they're they're too much in the way. Sometimes it feels like characters have to walk around them even. And Max and I are like, <laughs> yes, that's the point. They're walking around. We the did it. Place. We did it. And, and the guy, but the first person who ever noticed it just absolutely hated it. So then we started being really explicit about it. We do stuff like um, like if we if we had a character who was naked, we would just draw the word balloons over where her breast would be you know <laughs> so, like as a as a literal like look this is you don't get to see here because we're trying to be you know pg-13 you know yeah. approved or if we 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 once we once had um the lo- the logo of for cosmic hellcats that is over the top of every webcomic you know cosmic hellcats by Mavin max um we had an explosion and so on one particular issue, I mean, one particular episode, the logo got destroyed and knocked to the ground. So the next episode, um, one of the characters picks it up and starts hitting people with it. <laughs> and so just little things like that are just things that I like to do that are fun, but it doesn't make sense. There, there's no explanation about it in the comics world. Um, uh, one of and a much better version of that is a comic that I've been enjoying called Mr. Invincible which is a a character who just is aware he's in a comic book and uses the power of comics to do things. So he can, he can do things with perspective or he can teleport by looking at the, at the row of of comics beneath him and just jumping to another panel. So like, you know, Deadpool, She-Hawk logic, but on steroids. So like, I like being able to do things like that in the form and, and like do 
interesting things that don't, you know, like so She-Hawk in in her Marvel series, she jumped out of the screen and went into the Netflix or the Disney Plus browser. But that's a little different than what she does in the comic book version because it's a different form. And I like being able to appreciate the form for what it is. Yeah, the uh, there's so much of this that is unique. Like, um, I, I love what you're describing where uh, th- there's versions of the comics where they try and present the story much more naturalistically. And then times where, you know, I mean, the go to examples of for mainstream comics would be Deadpool or, or She-Hulk or Ambush mm-hmm. Bug for DC, where they will talk mm-hmm. about the word balloons or the panels or editors that are telling them what they can and can't do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, th- th- things like that. Um, and it's a lot of fun to see it done well there are times where it can become just like uh tedious like, tell, tell the story just, just <laughs> tell me the story <laughs> you know uh but when it's done well it, it can be really delightful uh to see um one other thing that i want to make sure we highlight about comics when we were talking about time which we, we we dwelt into uh quite a bit already um scott mcleod makes the point that we are trained because of photography to think of any still image as a single moment in time, but comics rarely are doing that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, where like you will have, uh, you know, if, if there's two word balloons, like a character says something and a character responds, like that's a sequence of time that mm-hmm. is often encapsulated in one single image uh, on the panel. And Scott McLeod also like draws one as an example, he draws like one long panel of like a scene at a party where on the left side someone takes a picture and you see the flash of the bulb and then someone's like oh it's bright and then the next person's like you're supposed to smile uh, you know and, <laughs> and, and like it's going left to right um mm-hmm. people like reacting to what happened on the left side of the panel as it gets farther to the right mm-hmm. and it, you don't stop and think about it when you're reading it because we're if you're a seasoned comic book reader you're kind of trained to just kind of move along but it's not capturing a single moment in time you mm-hmm. have a single image, but time is actually progressing as you read through a comic book panel very often. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly there are, you, you can point to counterexamples where it is a split second of the punch landing in a superhero comic book or mm-hmm. a reaction shot in an indie comic of someone opening a door and, you know, who is it that's there? You know, those mm-hmm. things could just really be that moment in time. But also very frequently comic books are uh, giving us a static image with linearity that's still implicit within it. Mm-hmm. And 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 sometimes from panel to panel, mixing doing one to doing the other, mm-hmm. and you just you just sort of inherently learn to deal with it, and just you, you develop a sense of oh, this this panel is supposed to take thirty seconds. The next panel took one millisecond. I don't know yeah. how I could tell you that. It just, I just can, you know? And sometimes it is size of the panels, like, like we were mentioning earlier, uh, you know, with like the, the rhythm that we're given, are the panels getting shorter and, and smaller as things are happening more quickly? And then, you know, is it uh, a widescreen, you know, oh, Brian Hitch was famous for doing what he called the widescreen style of, mm-hmm. of comic book panels where you really are supposed to just stop and think, I'm staring at one split second and it's frozen in time uh, as I look at this. And like you said, there's a rhythm that you can kind of intuit as a reader and very often it's at a subconscious level. You're not really processing at all. You're just following the story as it's told to you and you really have to stop and think about the formalistic aspects of comics to start to parse out that wait something kind of odd was happening with mm-hmm. time <laughs> in here and I, I wasn't even aware of it when i read it mm-hmm. andrew any final thoughts on storytelling in comic books i feel like there's still plenty that could be said yeah oh <laughs> i i didn't even mention I, I think we've gotten some major highlights but yeah there's we're, we're about at the end of this. Still. Yeah, it's not even all time. It's you know we could talk about I, like oh, things I like the fact- continuity that, oh, that yes. we associate continuity <laughs> with comic books, but it's mm-hmm. actually not like an aspect of the medium. It's an aspect of corporate storytelling and collectors. Uh, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, and collectors, and it, it's fascinating the way it's built up in, in within like geek culture. It's become associated with comic books, though it's present in so many other storytelling mediums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's almost like probably another half hour of discussion that we really. <laughs> We're probably pushing the limits of this episode right. already. But I think it's a fascinating one because it's, it's one that spills over specifically, I would say, because of the preoccupation with continuity born of almost entirely out of Stan Lee's desire to sell more comic books, like specifically yes. one guy. This it's is like, a shared universe. You <laughs> need to go pick up Thor to know why yes. it's snowing. It is literally, yeah, just a narrative decision that was made in the late sixties to like tie these in as closely as possible so that you'll buy more of them. Um, and that has spilled over into just sort of 
particularly the quote unquote comic book movie, you know, with the MCU, but also just geek movies in general. It was like, well, I don't know which of these Star Wars movies are canon and which aren't. And and you should be able to say, well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. That's how you it's know, just a Star Wars story. Right. We've <laughs> we've been doing this literally. You know, we've had shared universes for thousands of years of, yeah. you know, of 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 playwriting and and book writing and you know what happens in mythology what happens in you know in the iliad versus the odyssey and can it all have happened in the same universe doesn't matter but when we get to the comic book world we're like well wait this spider-man is contradicting something that he did in this issue from two years ago how can that be and 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 hey readers you tell us and we'll give you a prize if you tell us how this possible yeah (laughs) uh well and when stanley started that i will just also want to point out it was much less onerous for a mega fan to read all of the marvel comics (laughs) because there were 25 of of them (laughs) uh, well because of contracts they could only publish eight a month total and often those weren't all going to be superhero in their superhero (laughs) universe uh so, so you could literally you know by buying two a week Put, pick up the entirety of Marvel's superhero output right. and easily read all of it. And that was not the uh, kind of contract that's expected today where Marvel will send out, you know, 10 new titles a, a, week, a week sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, but- and also the price was a nickel, a dime rather, mm-hmm. you know, compared to five bucks now. But even even in the 70s, you know, they once they were they weren't under the contractual restrictions, they were under the financial restriction publishing 25 or 30 books a month like it like and they were they were readable in the sense that wolverine was only appearing in one of them spider-man was appearing in two and that was it you know you could they were really being careful about about continuity Mm -hmm. uh like if wolverine was going to go have a his own solo miniseries chris claremont would write him out of x-men he's not here for the next four issues because he's gonna have four issues of his wolverine comic book and and now wolverine is in you know avengers and different titles (laughs) in a month and each one is carrying its own story and somehow they want to create the illusion that this is a carefully crafted Mm -hmm. interlocking continuity here it really was a carefully crafted interlocking continuity for a while Mm -hmm. uh and, and sort of still is ish with major asterisks anytime you want to try and make it all work (laughs) but there was a time where they were really trying creatively to make it work Mm -hmm. and even then like you said there were there'd be mistakes um i i think that it is a particular it's a now we're getting very into superhero comics and but i think even with non-superhero comics there's a peculiarity of the comic book reader to sort of want to figure out the puzzle so even if you're i'm trying to think of something that's not superhero-y that like has weird time fun home fun home has kind of weird time in it and uh, allison beckville's fun fun home and as a comics reader there's a well wait you know what's what's she doing here how does this work and like trying to figure out the logic of you know how it's supposed to be her life story. So how does this storyline from when she's seven fit in from with this storyline from when she's 19 versus when she's writing yeah. this in her thirties. And, and there's like a lot of, there's a lot of doing that, that there's no reason for the form to invite that, but it's just become, it's become a trope of the medium more than a formal aspect. Even uh, like Stan Sakai's Usagi Ujimbo will do that where it's like, yes. wait, you know, and part of that is he's been writing that comic for, 40 years now is it I don't wow know. really uh, oh I my gosh know. yeah it, probably doesn't it have to be around there <laughs> since uh, the 80s yeah 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 uh <laughs> and so with comic books if you're doing periodical uh releases of contained stories that are interlocking in some way almost inevitably they jump back to say well this one's happening in between those two issues you know from from earlier uh and you're supposed to read it that way and that's starting to become like you mentioned uh spill over into the MCU and Star Wars, where it's like, well, go watch this animated series that fits in between those two films mm-hmm. uh, and, and things like that. And it's <laughs> become part of nerd culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. It seemed to very much build out of comic book culture and comic book as a particular kind of nerddom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's spread into other media. But but so much of that idea of like continuity, that is not anything that's inherent to comic books, mm-hmm. but somehow it is very associated it's just like superheroes is not inherent to comic books, but has become very associated. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mav, Andrew, thank you for this discussion. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, we could definitely go for hours longer, but I think we're going to need to wrap up here. I could do a semester long class if you wanted me to. <laughs> yeah, well, I could do 
podcast just on mouse and you know multiple lectures digging into the time flies panels <laughs> I covered here. uh mav uh thank you again for joining us Absolutely. that's going to wrap up this episode uh for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows you can go to duelinggenre.com also please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice and please leave us a review that does help us out we would like to thank scott tofty who composed our theme music mav you do not have as much to plug as you used to. Is that right? No, I'm only, I mean, my, one of my two podcasts wrapped up. My, my, um, so you can still go listen to old episodes of Gosh Golly Wow, which is a, all about comics, specifically the comic Excalibur. So, you know, I'd love to hear you talk about it, but there's no more new ones because we're done with that one. But you can hear me weekly on Vox Popcast, V-O-X-P-O-P-C-A-S-T, where we talk about comics but also movies and tv shows and just you know pop culture analysis in general um so more of what we did today but i do it every week over there and you're also i'm sure a guest on many other podcasts yeah yeah (laughs) i show up here if you if you're looking for somebody to be on a podcast and i've got time you know send me an email i might be able to do it and we would never want to forget our long-running Ground Pod Day podcast that you and I. Oh share, yes, yes. We don't really need to pull on that. It just you know shows up. Once it's again. been for the last million years, yes, or two. Well, <laughs> listeners, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So. Hey, 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 Mav, do you want to know how our box office is doing? Oh, my goodness. Um-